episode three of Carbs and Cars. Lucky Donahue, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dov. Mate, absolute pleasure. Give us a bit of a uh, brief background about yourself, what you do, where you started, and where you are now. So, um, look, I started my apprenticeship in the motor trade 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, went to TAFE with you. Yep. Um, uh, halfway, well, sorry, third year of TAFE um, was when I started in Australian motorsport. Yep. Working in Australian production cars and everything like that. Um, I was working in a local shop in uh, Sydney's North Shore at the time. And then I was flying out for weekends and working on weekends doing motorsport and everything yep. like that. Um, as we got through to probably the fourth year or final year of my apprenticeship, um, I moved away from the small shop and started working for Lotus. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started working for Lotus, I was doing a lot more racing with them as well as um, the team that I was currently working for, which was Osborne Motorsport, mm-hmm. um, running Renaults and Australian production cars. Mm-hmm. And then um, after that, we uh, yeah I did six months at Lotus. Then um, COVID started to hit and we started to move. I had to moved from them because they were downsizing motorsport of course backed off um and then halfway through well end of 2020 after everything's kind of settled down i bought my own business um in sydney's northern beaches bmw um tuning and race car workshop Mm -hmm. and um we've slowly developed that over the last three years what's the business called uh bromspec motorworks and whereabouts is it uh it's in brookvale and sydney's northern beaches and what's the typical type of work that you do so look we are a service shop Mm -hmm. mainly same as you what we do is we're servicing um all sorts of vehicle repairs uh, everything along those lines Mm -hmm. um we do do a fair bit of tuning depending on the market at the time um and tuning road cars building very very quick road cars um and then on certain clients with certain clients we do full race car prep and then we go away to all the racetracks around the country and we run those cars for the weekend which yeah. includes everything from engineering the car developing the car mechanicing on the car and driver training and everything along those lines so we're a full service kind of um workshop slash um race team mm-hmm. in the way um which not a lot of people do yeah yeah look it's definitely it's definitely something that we steer clear from um you know as we know as you know it's it's the stuff that we do is more on the the service side, you know, your maintenance side. Uh, we will do a little bit of modifications, but nothing major. It's more so, sort of, you know, springs, exhaust intakes, that, that sort of stuff. Basic bolt-ons. Yeah, bolt-ons. Um, wheels, that sort of stuff. Um, I find the general stress of the shop and the general sort of, you know, there's there's enough problems as there <laughs> is, as there is. Adding, adding in modifications and it, it just, for me, it's like... it. it I, I don't. I don't see the value there. Yeah. Um, yeah. As like a, from like from like a business point of view. Yeah. Look, and I think it's interesting because like we're very yes, we're bolt ons, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of what we do is flash tuning. Yep. Um, but I think the interesting thing we found is because we race in Australian production cars, mm-hmm. which is essentially unlike most other categories, they are road cars that we turn into race cars. Okay. So it's a car that you can buy of any normal person can buy off the shelf mm-hmm. um, from a dealer. And then what we do is we strip them out, we put suspension, brakes, um, we do not as much modification to the engine, we're not really allowed to. Mm-hmm. Um, we're quite restricted in the rules that we can, uh, what we can and can't do. Um, but we, it's funny because all this tuning work that we actually do and the bolt-ons and the development work we do on these road cars actually helps with those race cars as well. Yeah. Um, so from my point of view, like we do mainly bolt-on stuff. Um, we don't do a lot of big internal work or anything like that, okay. and especially with the F-Series BMWs. Um, 
a lot of it's really easy to make really good power. You can pull an off-the-shelf flash tune off. There's not a lot of stress, mm -hmm. um, but when we do start to delve into the more higher-powered, bigger turbos, everything like that kind of stuff, um, generally that's more about R&D for us. Yeah. Yeah. So the stress is kind of... There's kind of a disclaimer mm -hmm. when the customer comes into that, and you're like, you're pushing this car well beyond yeah, it's, what, it's, well, what it's come from factory. Yeah, what it's come from factory yeah. and what yeah. it's specified as factory. And look, these cars are very, very strong, yeah. but they do all have their limits at some point. And as everything does. As everything yeah. does. Yeah. And look, so it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of shops exactly in your position. Mm. Like, it's too many headaches. There's too many other problems that mm. will come from it. Um, I think the approach is very much... I'd say customer based. Mm -hmm. So there will be customers that we know aren't going to probably come back and scream at us or understand what they're getting themselves into. Mm. And then there's other customers who have absolutely no idea. And look, they push the car well past it's meant to be pushed. Don't do supporting modifications mm -hmm. with it. And then they'll come back and scream at you. It's like, why is my car broken? And yeah. It's like, well, because it wasn't built to do that and we yeah. didn't do the right things to support what you were trying to do in the first yeah. place. Yeah. And those are kind of customers that we would either push in another direction. Mm -hmm. um, we've got one at the moment with um, an E90, E93, mm -hmm. the uh, 335i. Mm -hmm. And the first thing was like, so when do we do a big, bigger turbo? And he's taking it to track days, he's trying to go fast on track, but he's running standard tires, standard mm. brakes, standard suspension. And that engine in that car, the N55 in those kind of cars was not designed with that car in mind so yeah. there's heating there's cooling issues there's fitment issues there's a whole lot of packaging issues in that car so trying to just bolt a big turbo one you're going to have a lot of issues yeah. but he can find a lot more time and advantage on the racetrack with tires wheels suspension and then generally and with those kind of customers will steer them in a very different direction mm. and be like well look you can but you're not going to be able to use it so why don't you do this first and we found with a lot of the customers we steer in that direction they get to that point and they're going faster and then they start to understand that power is not everything. No, of course. It's, there's also handling and there's no point in going fast if you can't stop fast. Exactly. It's, uh, it comes hand in hand. Yeah, it does. So, so this is your beast. This is my little weapon. Explain, explain to us what, what we have here. So this is an F20 M135. Mm -hmm. um, it runs a three litre straight six single turbo yep. um, with a ZF eight speed, um, which I believe is probably one of the best gearboxes ever developed the mm -hmm. ZF8 speed um, this has got about retail probably about 10 grand worth of modifications into it yep. um, where would probably be around if you're talking stages which yep. most people are used to talking probably in a 2 plus mm -hmm. we're not really quite 3 yet mm -hmm. um, when we put a turbo on it it will be yeah. but at the moment it's running 257 rear wheel kilowatts which is 345 rear wheel horsepower mm -hmm. and 690 newton metres of torque at the rear wheels just to go into generally for, for listeners who aren't sort of super familiar with with the um the stages would, would it be would it be right to say that um generally you know your stage one would be a tune and maybe an intake maybe an exhaust stage two would be adding let's say a, a intercooler high pressure fuel pump with supporting mods and then that three then goes into turbos and, and superchargers yeah. depending well, on general, yeah. generally on these cars um they're over-engineered from mm -hmm. bmw from factory so our stage one is replacing the pipe that runs from the intercooler to the intake yep. manifold yep. on the engine um, we replace the plastic one that pops off even from factory with a metal one mm -hmm. and then we whack a tune in it yep. and that's it 
That's a stage one. And okay. you'll get uh, usually a 30 to 40% increase in power yeah. just by doing that. Okay. Um, the stage twos where we run them now are generally about um, catless or catted downpipes. Catless, depending on where you're Located. situated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, catless downpipe, an intercooler, and probably a cold air intake. Yeah. Um, and this one has a cold air intake where the pickup is actually behind the front grill. Okay. Um, so it feeds direct from... Uh, the cold air coming in mm-hmm. um, and then where we're at at the moment I've got um, coil packs um, I've also got um, a two-stage bigger intercooler in the front mm-hmm. um, we're running boost pipes that are metal now um, and there's what we call an oil thermostat so these come with a factory oil cooler mm-hmm. um, and the oil the factory thermostat opens at 120 degrees we put one on that opens at 85 okay. so it uses that cooler a lot earlier yeah um, and that's generally where we're at with this. But um, these cars, what we've found and what we do a lot of tuning with these is bang for your buck power. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot on the market where you're going to kind of reach yeah. where we are. So this whole car, and you can buy them cheaper than I bought the car now, mm. but this whole car, including build cost, wheel tires, everything, has only cost me 40 grand. Wow. Wow. And sorry, um, what, what are the power specs again on this? So it's a 345 rear wheel horsepower and yep. 690 newton meters of torque. Wow. Wow. And there's most V8s that won't push that torque out yeah. of these things. Yeah. And that's, of course, why I run semi-slicks mm-hmm. and uh, bigger brakes yeah. and a whole range of other things so that it actually works. You but have to, yeah. You absolutely have to. And do you track it? Uh, I wish I had. Mm-hmm. I haven't had the time, and unfortunately. Yeah. Um, we get to the situation where I'll book a track day with like BMW Drivers Club or probably Driving Solutions or something out mm-hmm. of Eastern Creek, and then a week before the event or two weeks before the event, I get a call from a customer, Shit comes and up. they're like, no, can you please... They'll be going to the same track day. Yeah. And then they'll turn around and go, like, can you run my car for the weekend? Mm. And look, from my point of view, the customer's, in that respect, more important. Yeah. What we do in that respect, so... Um, and that's our branding and that's what we do. Yeah, so, of course. Look, when I get a track day booked and don't have a customer that is out there trying to run their car, then I'll probably track it. Yeah. Um, it's what I'm building it for, essentially, mm-hmm. but it's a bit the best of both worlds. Yeah. So it's a very good road car. It's actually quite surprisingly quite efficient. It does mm-hmm. 7.4 litres per 100 yeah, well. when you're cruising, um, which for the car with this power figures and this amount of juice is rare as all hell yeah of course um but look it's a good daily driver it's comfortable it's got lots of space it fits four adults quite comfortably but it also scares the shit out of people when yeah you need it to. oh absolutely i find that a lot of the europeans are a very sort of best of both worlds where even if you do go into that heavy modification you can still you're not compromising on economy when you know go on a road trip or yeah. you know you're cruising down the highway or driving to work yeah you find a lot of that with the, the europeans with the way that they run ecus and their engine management systems are next level like mm. some of the japanese cars you get really good with like yeah. even the 300 the 350z's the mm-hmm. 370z's everything like that you can get close to it but when you're trying to push the figures that we're pushing out of like say an rs3 yeah where we we had an rs3 that we built um uh, with uh, apr mm-hmm. um so they're over in the us yep. and we were doing stuff with them over here and doing all the mods for it and that had 509 all-wheel horsepower wow. But it was still a reason. It wasn't a great daily driver, but it yeah. was a reasonable enough daily driver yeah. that you could use it daily. Mm. Um, and that's a ridiculous amount of power. Yeah, it's it's enormous. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. And those cars are, like, one, I think, one of the best one of the best sounding engines. They sounding engines. You know, they the the grumble from the exhaust. Yeah. The the I said grumble. I meant rumble. But rumble. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know the the pops and the bangs and it's it's like. 
like a lot of cars now, you know, have a lot of that. Yeah. But for its time, you know, I guess maybe starting out with Golf RS3 initially, then moving into that of those massive bangs yeah. on gear changes, it was, I think it was, you know, kind of revolutionary because yeah. now everything has that. Oh, yeah. That's um, standard. But yeah. they were the first ones to really yeah. push that limit yeah. when they came to tuning. And yeah. to be perfect, there's something about that um, odd number of cylinders, mm. the engine note. So your fives and tens, there's something about that howl that. Uh, it gets me every time. Yeah. Like, it's it's special. So, I'm going to be a little off on my stats here, yep. but I've, I I learned a long time ago that Audi has the same firing order from their cylinder from their five-cylinder engine that they have when they initially developed it, I believe, in the 80s. And since the 80s to now, that firing order has not changed in that five-cylinder. Yes, that is true. Yeah. Very much so. Is it so. the 80s? Uh, well, yeah, 84, yeah, okay. I think it was. Okay, so, yeah, cool. mid-80s. Right. Yeah. Pretty much on. Bang um, on yeah, back with the uh, Quattros. Yeah. Yeah. When they run the Quattros and the Group B and Group C rally cars, like they, they found a formula that works. Yeah. And if it ain't broke, don't fix don't it. Fix it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so the podcast is called Carbs and Cars. Should we get into some carbs? We should get into some carbs. So we have uh, a cup, a selection of uh, little goodies from Infinity Bakery, um, just here in uh, in Darlinghurst. Awesome. Uh, they they've been around for a long time. They they're there at the the crack of dawn. Um, and everything is is fresh every morning and yeah looks amazing yeah let's let's dig in how do you want to get into this uh donut you want there we go i'm a absolute fiend for a donut there we go i'm gonna get into this croissant oh look at that yeah what's what's your ultimate your ultimate pastry um, yeah, like I said, impartial to donuts. Lovely really? donut. Mm-hmm. Um, good crust on every now and again. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't go away from, but yeah. Donuts have been my thing for a while. Really? Like a, um, like a, like a servo donut or like Krispy Kreme? Uh, depends on the day. Like The servo donut hits the spot in a rush, thank mm-hmm. you very much. Um, but there's not a lot that beats. Yeah, you're good Krispy Kremes or mm. this. Like just proper, well-made. And from my point of view, like, they're not massive, but they fill you up because of all the air. Yeah. So I can eat minimally yeah. and still have... When you smash that, I'll smash this and we'll split this cookie. Sounds good. Um, there's nothing like a fresh Krispy Kreme. <laughs> oh, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Stuff of dreams. Mm. Mm. Are you a plain donut kind of guy or... Pink. Strawberry iced. Oh. Yeah. Every day of the week. I don't know, started as a kid mm-hmm. and they've never changed. I'm a creature yeah. of habit. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's totally fine. That's um no, it's a good thing. Yeah. It's a good thing. Um all right, so tell me more about your business. Um so we we went to tape together. Um and then and then you got to the point of did you always know you wanted to have your own workshop? Uh look, it, it was always for me, it was always on the cards. I didn't think it would happen when I was 25. Mm-hmm. That was definitely not on the cards. Um, we were, yeah, so it was middle of COVID. We started generally looking um, March 2020. Mm-hmm. So when COVID kind of first kicked in and lockdowns kicked in, mm-hmm. um, we were like, look, we can see where the market's going and this is probably an opportunity to buy something like relatively cheap. Mm-hmm. It was my mum's idea and she, yeah, March, she flicked me an email from a business sales company and mm-hmm. just went, have a look at these. And I went, interesting. Okay. What's your idea there? And she's like, well, there might be an opportunity here. I was like, okay. 
Radio, yeah. So um, we ended up looking, going through a few things, and I was still working at this time. Um, the racing had died down, mm-hmm. which is kind of why it was going to work, because I had nothing really on the cards motorsport-wise. And yeah. the original idea was, and I did a little bit of work with um, Aston and Bentley here mm-hmm. um, on GT cars, um, but never really graduated across to doing the things that we did overseas, and that was always the aim. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, their COVID and everything like that, that stopped being on the cards. Because it was one of those things where my aim was to actually go to Europe full time, work on these cars, work in Europe based wherever the team was based and do all of that full time. Um, and yeah, after COVID, it was just no one was really looking at doing that. Yeah. And the vision for the future and a lot of those major European teams, even the smaller ones that you yeah. had to work with was we're going to survive, but it's going to be tight. It's skeleton stuff. Yeah, yeah. So And it was never going to be, they were never going to fly someone over from the other side of the world and help yeah. them get set up. Like there's... It doesn't matter how good you are, there's an expense mm, if you're here and you want to work in Europe. Same with Formula One, same with everything. There's an expense to those teams yeah. to get you set up and get you working. So you either have to be really good at your job mm. um, or really experienced. And at that time, I was good enough, but I did not have the experience. So um, we thought the business was the best, next best option. Yeah. So we ended up yeah, purchasing it in um, October 2020 mm-hmm. um, from a guy who'd been running it for the last 20 years. Yep. Um, lovely guy bit grouchy um, and had not killed a fair bit of his customer base but um, when you're trying to do 50 million things at once you mm. had one staff member mm. and he was trying to be on the phones on the cars this that and the other it was start at 5.30 in the morning finish at 7, 8 o'clock at night um, he wanted to get out and it kind of just worked mm-hmm. um, and it fit we kind of slotted in so how old was he? Oh, he was 50 okay so look not as old as some of the guys who run some yeah. of these shops yeah. but and he's now working and running his own little shop in Port Macquarie. Okay. Better work-life balance, much yeah. happier where he is, yeah. uh, much happier with his family up there. Yeah. So it was kind of time for him to get out of Sydney, mm. yeah. and it, we kind of timed it right. And my dad helped me set up the whole front of house. Mm-hmm. He's spent like, 30 years in corporate customer experience and um, the customer service industry, that kind of front-facing, yeah. telling people like Westpac and mm-hmm. Service New South Wales exactly how you need to treat your customers. Yeah. So having him is unbelievably valuable to the business. Um which has been fantastic to have him and help set up. He still runs my front desk for me. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, we've just kind of built it up over the last three years. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be, yeah, as of October, three years now. Um, we've developed a really good customer base. We've revamped our reputation, changed a lot of uh, the way that things were done, mm-hmm. modernized a lot of stuff. Um, same thing that you've done. Yeah, 100%. Like we're, it's interesting because there's a very, you find with a lot of younger guys running workshops, we have a very different approach. 100%. Um, from the older guys. And look, I think with the changing times, it actually becomes a lot more welcome. Yeah, of um, course. Because we're not the grumpy old guy. Yeah. Oh, honey, Filthy this is shop. How, yeah, and, yeah. Honey, this is how cars work. Yeah. Not really explaining stuff. We're yeah. a lot more in the new age and that's helped both of us quite 100%, yeah. Look, I find that, um, I find that a lot of the older guys you know, have been doing it for 30 years, 40 years, you know, they they develop a bit of a, like a, like a chip on the shoulder and they, it's almost like they don't want to be there, so why are you here? Yeah. And and then that then reflects onto, onto their staff because the staff are, are like, well, well, we have to be here because, you know, we, we want the job, but, you know, it's, it's a toxic work environment. Yeah. You know, 
customers don't enjoy it because they feel like a you know a, i guess for a lot of females feel like they're getting ripped off yeah. you know a lot of males are like well you know it's just not a very respectful place to to walk into yeah. um and then often i find those shops are, are doing things either a backwards or or c it's just very sort of you know nothing's changed for 30 years and it's filthy and it's not approachable and yeah. you know w- why would someone take their car there when they can go into um you know, a, a shop that someone's ne- you know spent half a million dollars, you know, yeah. making look you know outstanding, and it's 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 a workshop, but it's also a showroom, yeah. and and it's like, well, if if how they treat their workshop is how they're going to treat my car, you know, that's sort of a um a big a big factor when someone looks at someone's yeah, shop. 100%. Like, like I pride myself on keeping this place spotless, you know, like when we have we have white walls and we have grey floors, and and look all the white all the walls aren't completely white you know but it's it's <laughs> as any workshop exactly would be. but it the contrast of clean is is very sort of you know uh people people like to see that yeah. like often people will walk in and be like oh my god like like that especially like not not necessarily the ones that oh actually no so the ones that come from dealers are often like, oh wow, I wasn't expecting this because yeah. they're they're expecting I'm coming from you know hundred million dollar building you yeah. know at BMW Sydney or at Audi Centre Sydney. Yeah. Um, I get coffees. It's all nice coffees. Floors. Yeah. I don't really see the workshop because exactly. it's hidden somewhere. And then they're expecting some dingy hole in the wall. Yeah. Um, or they've come from a dingy hole in the wall and then they're like, oh wow, this is you know yeah. not what I was expecting. Um, and and then onto your other point about you know the the way things are done um the previous business i worked at you know those guys were were a lot older than me and their th- their processes for the shop weren't necessarily bad it was more the office processes that i found to be um very very backwards and very sort of archaic archaic and and the way that they were sort of you know let, let, let's say reconciling the books. So for example, you know, the, the way that they were making sure that, that every invoice had been paid, they're basically taking a job card and then stapling a, a credit card receipt to that job card and then filing that. And then whatever credit card receipts or job cards were left over at the end of the week, it meant that, that, that they hadn't been paid yet. And, and the problem with that is number one, you end up with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of of unnecessary records. Yeah. Um, some jobs don't have job cards, like wipers and pink slips and yeah. bulbs and small things. So no record. So there's no there's there's no record of that. Um, and you know, like handwriting invoices and just just terrible. And um, my my as you know, my my wife does uh, does the book. She she works in the office. Um, and she she's never experienced the old mechanical side she's just on the on the business side and she's like well this is how you operate a business yeah doesn't matter what it is whether whether you are building rockets or whether you're you're fixing cars or you're you're you know you're making pastries yeah you know it doesn't matter there's 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 a certain way that you that you that you do account for everything there's a certain way that you you know treat your staff there's a certain way that you pay your wages in a certain way but it's super and PAYG and, and there's a certain way yeah. to, to do banking and that sort of stuff it doesn't matter what industry you're in um, but I find a lot of the industries where where the guys have been stuck there for 40 years and have developed a certain level of you know comfortability they're just not adapting not adapting yeah at all and they're not moving forward with the way that things unfortunately nowadays well not unfortunately but just have to be done unfortunately for them yeah, yeah unfortunately for them yeah. have to be done um, and you just can't, the customer expects a certain thing nowadays. 
they're used to it, especially with all the retail um, products that they buy and the way that they're treated everywhere else in 100%. other industries. Like you need to be in a position where you're providing your customers with exactly this, what they expect, yeah. essentially. Like something that would, that would take me, you know, three, four hours on a Friday afternoon is now 10 minutes on zero. Oh yeah. You know, and, and it, it's funny, I actually haven't thought about this since, um, for, for years. Yeah. Um, but it's funny that you that, um, we bring it up because yeah, it's just, um, so many of these old school things, then I, I actually find that they translate from the office and then get rolled into the workshop or it's the workshop that gets rolled into the office yeah. and, and the customer can feel that. Yeah. And I find that they can, they can see that it's it's a very um, prehistoric way of doing things, which then translates to how you're going to treat the car, yeah. how you're going to treat and them, and also just doesn't fill them with confidence because, no, especially with how complicated and high tech modern cars can be and are at the moment. Yeah. Um, like even this one, this was a 2012 um, my one, but even then it's got 34 different computer systems in it. Of course, yeah. Um, to run all the ancillaries, the radios, all the climate control, everything like that. And like, if you go into a workshop run by an old guy. That's ridiculous, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, workshop run by an old guy um, and he just doesn't, like there's one computer or one scan mm -hmm. tool sitting around, like he's not gonna be capable mm. of looking after the car the way it needs to be looked after. Yeah. And like you've got the perfect thing here. Your customers walk in, they see the computer screens, there's multiple scan tools. You're obviously up to date with the way that cars are working now, as, as we are. And that's why we're specialists in what we do. Mm -hmm. We have all the latest technology that we need to, to be able to scan and code, program and do all that to cars, especially race cars. Um, and that just provides that little bit of extra confidence yeah. from the customer. 100%. And look, at the end of the day, if you're the kind of shop that, mm. you know, how good is that? <laughs> that is <laughs> delicious. <laughs> You can use colourful words. We're we're good. We're not a we're not a children's show. This is that's not sugarcoat. This this yeah, this cookie's right. fucking, fucking delicious. Gro fucking gross. <laughs> now now I'm upset. I should have gotten two. <laughs> I want a fucking whole one. I don't want to share. Um, all right. All right. Are you a cookie guy? Yeah. What kind? But of this thing? is more cake than cookie. It is, isn't it? It's really fluffy. That's yeah. It's almost like a brownie. Hmm. It's rich as shit. I know. Maybe half was good. Mm. Yeah, oh, that was good. Oh. <laughs> I can feel myself getting diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> well, if uh, this podcast is going to do anything for me, it's going to be that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially every week. I'm trying to fil film an episode, and there's there's more shit on the table that's um mm. that I don't need. And uh, <laughs> yeah, oh no, don't worry, I'm bad like that. Yeah. Um. So, how many how many staff do you have? At the moment, I'm running with three. Mm -hmm. um, I did have six. And we downsized um, just, look, not so much due to interest rates, but mainly due to um, just the people that we hired were great initially. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that kind of old school culture, mm -hmm. not from us, from people we brought in, um, they had that old school culture and that kind of culture filtered into the workshop yeah. with a few other people. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, the lack of care and that lack of attention to detail um, is just not something I can have in this business. Yeah. Yeah. So we've minimized a bit more um, and we've got another one, we've got another young girl starting mm -hmm. in on the 13th, mm -hmm. so in a week and a half's time. Yeah. Um, and then we'll be up to four um, and then we've got a work experience kid in at the moment that'll yeah. be really good for a first year apprentice. So we'll probably start him sometime next year. Mm -hmm. 
So we'll be back up to yeah the five staff. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I find um, often. F- firstly, I'll just state, and I've, I've mentioned this to you before. Um, we've gone through the ringer finding staff, and it, it's it's. I, I knew it was going to be difficult. I didn't realize it would be the most difficult. Oh, yeah. And it's not just finding staff; it's dealing with with people's shit and and dealing with the the, the baggage that that surrounds them. And you know, people people can come with excellent references. And then all of a sudden, you know, it just it just turns into yeah, and yeah. they can be fantastic for like six months. And yeah, yeah. Like, I love this. And guy. it's like He's great, fantastic. great, 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 and then bang, yeah, I just drop off completely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I find that it's it has definitely been the most difficult thing, um, and you know what? Once you get a good team together, it's so important to to keep a a family, you know. Um, system going because yeah. you want everyone to want to be at work absolutely excuse me we um we i took an interview the other week and the guy came and we we had an interview and my my feeling was not whether i need to grow the shop my feeling was is he going to mesh with the the calm and the you know the, the culture the, that the culture have that we have yeah. and and honestly it turned into that you know what maybe this is going to turn into somewhere where everyone's like, oh my God, I can't wait to come to work. Yeah. To, oh, I've got to see this guy now, yeah. you know? And I was like, you know what? I, it's not like it's not like it's me on my own. You know no. what I mean? I have guys, you know, there's 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 four of us. You know, it's, it's nice to be in a position of hiring from strength yeah. when... When at the beginning of the business, like, and all, all my techs have been great. Yeah. It, it has just come down to attitude. Yeah. Um, and at the beginning, I'm hiring from a point of weakness because I'm hiring because it's like, yeah, oh, you're shit, hiring I out of desperation. Yeah. I can't do this on my own. I can't start this business on my and own. Then you don't filter through. You don't yeah. take, you, you take what you can get. Yeah. And you kind of give people like a little bit of like leeway. And mm-hmm. you're like, look, oh, that doesn't, that's not as necessarily yeah. as much of an issue as I thought it was going to be, or that's not going to be as much of an issue as it could be because mm-hmm. you need them to work for you and yeah. you need that help. Yeah. Um, so I agree with you completely. Yeah, Um, and that's a mindset thing that I found as well. Yeah. So even when we were hiring for a new mechanic and we were desperate for a new mechanic and a head mechanic and everything like that, we were still of the mindset that abundance mindset. We'll we'll be all right. We can run this. We can do that. Because like if we desperately hired someone and I had three or four people apply, um, and the guy we ended up going with actually hadn't been in the trade for eight years, but absolutely the correct attitude. He had fifteen years of experience prior to that. And like, I think the biggest thing from my point of view, the way I hire um, and I have always hired is skills you can teach. Like skills you can teach, work ethic and attitude, mm. that's something that has to come with them. 100%. And what we look for is the right work ethic, the right attitude. He had that in spades. Yeah. There were probably more up to date and more qualified people mm-hmm. that we could have hired, but it's been two and a half months now and I could not be happier. Yeah. Um, he is amazing. He picks up very, very quickly mm-hmm. and benefit of having a 36-year-old, an mm-hmm. adult. Still young, but yeah. more of an adult than the staff that I have had because I've yeah. always had relatively young staff that have been under the 22 age of... 22-year-olds yeah, and 25-year-olds, yeah. Most of my staff, apart from my dad, for the last two and a half years have been under the age of 30. Yeah, wow. Um, and look, there's benefits, and there's positives and negatives mm-hmm. to that. Um, look, you get a young, moldable kind of staff crew. There's a lot of energy, there's a lot of vibrance, but... 
unfortunately nowadays there's also a lot of uh, especially with the two apprentices that I've let go a lot of entitlement um, mm-hmm. and a fair bit of taking what they have for granted yeah um, so look we're changing the way we do things now and the the new one was that's starting this week has absolutely the right attitude mm-hmm. the right work ethic um, wants to be here and wants to work in a shop like ours um, and then all we've got to do is just mold her into what we need her to be yeah no no you're you're 100 percent right and it, it's interesting i've i've had staff and we've had sort of issues going on uh inside the culture and inside um you know, like work's always getting done. Like the quality of work's never, never changed. What, what has been an issue is I've had points where I'm like, I don't want to come to work, and that I'm the last person who should, should be, be like that. that. I Absolutely. Should, like, and when, when, when the culture's good and the guys are great and and the staff are happy, I'm like, fuck the weekend, let's go to work. Yeah. But then you know, in you know, a year ago, and we had poor staff. It's just like, I don't want to be here. It's a toxic work environment. And I'm like, why am I feeling this way in my yeah, business? Absolutely. Um, and it's something so important because you've got to spend you got to spend the whole day with these guys. Yeah. All day, five days a week. And, you know, it's 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 a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, and sometimes you get sick of people. Sometimes you get sick of people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes yeah. you do. And the little things that didn't annoy you at the start will start to really, really annoy you towards the yeah. end. Yeah. But look, I've had, um, I've had both my guys, one for coming on a year and one coming on 10 months and i hope they are part of the furniture for the next decade i hope they i don't know they don't go anywhere i'm, I'm sitting with my new guy i'm absolutely in the same position yeah. i really hope he doesn't and he's in, indicated to me that he wants to be there long term which mm. is the best thing you can have as a boss because for us it's security 100 percent. and i also give them that security as well like i i make it clear that 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 when I'm hiring, I'm not looking for someone for six months. I'm not looking for someone for, hey, you know, come try it out. You know, if you're happy here and you, and you, and you like it, I want you to be here for 10 years. I want to yeah. look back and say, hey, you know, I've known you for a decade. I want to pay you long service leave. Yeah, I want to pay you long service leave, 100%. 100%. You know what's interesting? I've never hired anyone younger than me. I have always, apart from my wife, yeah. I have always been the youngest employee mm. and I've also never worked with anyone younger than me. Which is interesting because from the beginning, I had to, when I was managing this shop before I, before I uh, opened my own shop here, um, I was always managing older people. And it's, it's, it's difficult being at the time 22 and telling 40 year olds what to do, oh, fuck yeah. you know, and at a time we've had older guys here as well. I was telling a 55 year old what to do, you know, and it, telling, like instructing people, you know, uh, on, on their jobs that are my mom's age, you know, yeah. it's, it's. A very interesting dynamic. Interesting dynamic, but it's you have to overcome that that and you know get past that age is just a number. Yeah. And you know there there's there, there's levels and that this is how this is operating. Yeah. You know because you know if it if, if they were the boss then I'd be listening to them. You exactly. Know, it's, it's just how it is. Um, well, we're the ones taking the risk at the end of the day. Hundred um, percent. And all the liability and everything that goes along with that, we're the ones that are making that leap to do that. But also, like age is just a number is a perfect example because experience speaks yeah. louder than that. And yeah. There are a lot of mechanics that are a hell of a lot older than me. Yeah. But they don't have the motorsport experience. Mm. They don't have the tuning experience. They haven't done through the career what I've done mm. and the places I've been. Like, it's nothing against them. They just haven't been put in those positions. I haven't wanted to be put in those yeah. positions. But that means my approach to repairing cars and servicing cars and doing all that is very very different yeah of course and it comes from a very clinical racing point of view where we look through issues and we attack issues and approach issues probably in a very different way to Mm -hmm. the standard mechanic just because 
the racing mindset is we need to not just fix this, but we need to make sure that that never happens again. Mm. So say you have a sensor melt or you have something that gets a bit hot and blows a sensor, our job now is to modify that and develop that so that it doesn't happen again. So if you're finding common failure points in cars, the next best thing is how do we upgrade this so it's no longer a common failure point? And that approach you don't see a lot of. Yeah. Um, but that's because we've got a background in R&D and development and that's kind of what helps us with the service we provide. People mm-hmm. know when a car comes in for a unique problem, they're going to have that problem fixed, but they're yeah. also going to have that car not have that problem again. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you find that that approach is welcome, mm-hmm. but also a bit more time consuming. Yeah. Now, talk me through your motorsport history. Well, look, I've had a lovely variety, Mm -hmm. I'd like to say. I'm very thankful for that variety. So um, uh, initially, when I first started, it was working on a Renault Megane um, in Australian production cars. Um, I did that, worked for that team for five years. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, That was a team I worked for for free. Um, So when I went away, all my accommodation, expenses, food, everything's paid for. So I'm not spending a cent, but I spent every Saturday in that workshop and... I spent a lot of time working on those cars because to get into motorsport, you don't just get handed that. No. Like it's a highly competitive industry. Yeah. It's the top tier of uh, almost what we do. Yeah. Um, as a lot far of as people have a lot of money on the line. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Ridiculous amount of funding involved um, and a lot of money lost when something doesn't go right. Yeah. Um, tens of thousands of dollars, unfortunately. Um, but look, so yeah, I started in that team. I've worked for them for five years yep. while doing a couple other things. So then there was, um, did three years with them all around the country in Australian production cars. We won C-Class Championship in um, the first year we did it. Mm-hmm. Well, first year I did it with them. Um, and we've won multiple races and C-Class Championships with that car um, throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Um, pain in the ass of a car. Mm-hmm. I know it better than any other car not because it's a good car it's because I had to repair it a lot <laughs> a lot of shit broke in that Renault yeah. um, especially when you're pushing them past yeah, the limits of, of what those cars are designed to well do. they don't have a reputation for being the most reliable the car. most reliable car yeah and the uniqueness and I'm putting that nicely the uniqueness of French cars and the way they're designed mm. creates issues look we don't do a lot of French cars here we have do I. maybe Two Renaults, one Citroen, maybe three Peugeots. Yeah. I can't stand any of them. Like, <laughs> they are... <laughs> oh, look, it's... Look, you do it because they're good customers. They're lo- look, they're all lovely, lovely yeah, customers. And yeah. realistically, we've got the same kind of approaches. Like, look, we already look after their BMWs. Mm-hmm. We will look after their other cars. Yeah. But they're not... By far not my favourite car to work on. No, no. Um, I find myself, when working on them, scratching my head, saying, what French engineer, what was he thinking when putting this together? Because this is the most, just the (laughs) most poorly designed, idiotic, you know, like just the stupidest thing. And like I've mentioned this in earlier episodes, there's... I, I will never claim to be smarter than an engineer no. in Germany or in France or in Italy or the US who, who are, you know, who have billions of dollars worth of R&D to go and develop these cars. And I'm sure there's a reason for everything. I often find that reason comes down to money rather than, than anything else. Yeah. Um, because if you, can, if you can save one bolt across 20 million vehicles, that one, might cost, that one bolt might cost $2. Yeah. That's a $40 million saving. Absolutely. So, so 
I often find that that things are done, you know, terribly, but they're not the ones seeing them 10, 15 well, years I down th- the line. I think the biggest thing is like when they design, you look at a lot of these designs and it looks great when the engine's not in the car. Yeah. And when they're yeah. manufacturing it, that's what they're looking at because you have different teams designing the chassis. You have mm-hmm. different teams designing the engine. Mm. They're all, and look, they kind of communicate when they've got to fit it, but there's no foresight into how much space you have to do a certain job yeah. and all the things you're going to have to pull off mm. to get to that one little piece, which is a common failure point in that car, yeah. but it's buried so far in that engine. You're like, you knew this was going to fail. In fact, it's designed to fail. Of course. So why didn't you put it in component? easily accessible position so it could be repaired quickly not buried behind an alternator and ac compressor and three other things that you've now got to take out so it's like a five minute ten minute job turns into a three hour ordeal just because of what you've got to pull off and look it's interesting because with the motorsport stuff that we're doing um, and everything like that we are designing and developing these cars Mm. so yeah the production cars and stuff like that a lot of it is working with technology developed by other engineers and stuff like that but when we're really pushing and developing these cars we are looking at changing like full exhaust system suspension um, geometry the way everything mounts to the body just to get more camber or the way we cant the engine slightly more just to get a little bit more airflow or get a little bit more pressure or anything along those lines Um, and it's funny because coming from my background and what we do when we do those development parts in race cars what we look at is how easy is this going to be to fix yeah because for us, it's not like I've got a hoist at a racetrack. Mm-hmm. I'm working on jack stands on the ground with the car only about this far off the ground. And it's 700 million degrees. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you've got to try and work on that car in a very confined space. So the way we p- move things around and where we put our ancillaries and all the extras that we do needs to be easily repairable mm. and easily accessible. Um, and I think it'd be interesting. Like You could throw... I wish they would do it. They never will. But all these engineers put them on a racetrack, get an older race car, run it around and be like, fix this. I don't even think you need to go that far. I think, I think all you need to do is, is get them into, let's say, a 15-year-old E90 320i <laughs> and say, hey guys, it's time for its yearly maintenance. Get this back to concourse showroom condition and then tell us, A, you know, how shit is this to work on, number one, or B, how is this the least cost-effective thing to do? Because now on a, let's be realistic, an $8,000 car, you're going to have to spend fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 to make yeah. it back to that condition. Where, whereas, you know, uh, you should... Yes, there's no one saying that there's no, there's no maintenance. Yeah. But, you know, a decade after the car's been released and it's, you know, valve stem seals pissing out oil, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, now, now when that happens, the car's worth, you know, nothing. You know, or an E53 five liter X, uh, sorry, four liter, four point eight liter um, X, uh, V8 X5. You know, and the rocket covers are leaking, and you got to pull the engine out to do it. And then the cars, you know, when someone paid one hundred eighty thousand dollars for that, and now the cars worth, you know, a cookie and a bacon egg roll. Yeah, and the funny thing is, it's usually not the first owner that has to deal with. No, that. of course it's not. The it's the fifth. Owner, yeah, and they've paid five, six, seven grand for it. Of course, oh, I've got a bargain, and yeah, no, because the job to do rock cover gasket leaks, which leaks all over the exhaust course. and is an issue that you yeah. need to fix, is now a three thousand dollar job because I've got to remove the whole engine to do it. Yeah, and yeah. there's there's no forethought in that. No, no, there, there's not. And I and I find that they they design something that is great off the factory, that is great for in warranty yeah and then it starts to deteriorate it's it's funny you say that because look i've got the opinion that like cars are now designed for a shelf life 
Of course, yeah. They yeah, are the disposable society that we have, mm. especially with cars like nowadays and electric cars as well. Mm. You're going to find that they're designed to work a certain amount of time yeah. and then they're just going to fall apart. And look, you can design plastic components and look, the development we've gotten even in these, like the inlet manifold in this is plastic, but it's strengthened, it's reinforced. Yeah. There is a different approach to the way that they've developed that car so I can run the boost that I can run yeah. without having to swap the manifold out for a metal one. Yeah. I can still run the plastic parts in certain areas that I can run. And that's okay. Of course. Um, but they're all going to have failure points at some point. Like, yeah, like, like everything does. Yeah, like everything does. But look, I think there's also, from a manufacturing cost perspective and an R&D perspective, there is also that kind of, look, we only need to make it this strong and we only need to make it last this long because mm. then it's no longer our problem. Of course, yeah. And why... W and so looking into what manufacturers make um, in terms of profit margin... You know, BMW, 4%. Audi, 7%. Mercedes is 5%. Um, you know, your Toyotas are 5%. You know, Mazda's like 8%. Ford is minus 3%. Yeah. Um, so it's not like these companies are making large amounts of money on, um, on, on, on these cars. It's a very, very slim margin. They may as well go into hospitality. Yeah. Like, it, it's, there, there's nothing there. The only two companies that make decent money on cars, one is Tesla at 40%, yeah. the only one that even comes close. And I believe they might be the only company above 10% is Ferrari at 35%. But that's because you're buying a luxury car. That's, and yeah, that's because they're, they're like, well, we can, we can make it for this and we can charge whatever the fuck we want. Well, because yeah. brand recognition, they'll buy it anyway. Exactly. And the Ferrari customer buys a Ferrari because he buys a Ferrari. Exactly. And they're, we'll always buy it. Yeah, we'll, exactly. Yeah. And we'll always buy a Ferrari and we'll, always, we'll never buy a Lamborghini, no. we'll never buy a Porsche, all no. we'll ever buy is Ferrari and yep. that's their market. 100%. And if you can get a market like that where sure. you have a loyal customer base that will always buy your cars no matter the cost mm -hmm. good on you but there's a reason there's only one Ferrari yeah yeah. so let's go back to racing so you were at Renault and yep. then uh, so with Renault um, and then the work I did with Lotus mm -hmm. and um, so what, what racing series was was we, the, were, you, were you doing with Renault? Uh, the Australian production cars and could you give us a bit of a background about that? okay so Australian production cars has essentially what V8 supercar was mm -hmm. um, because they used to be back in the 80s and 90s they were production based cars okay like even the GTRs that they ran in V8 supercars in the touring Australian touring car series what it was called back then they were road cars that mm -hmm. they turned into race cars and the philosophy behind that is race on Sunday sell on Monday yeah um, as racing's developed and moved on and over the last 20 odd years like they're now purpose built race cars yeah there is nothing really road car in them um, they are designed space frame chassis. They've got the engine specifically designed for the car, the suspension, the wheels. Everything is specifically designed as a race car, yeah. as opposed to turning a road car with all its road cars, not suspension, but its geometry, mm -hmm. the heaviness, the weight of it, um, and all the interior stuff and all that crap that you've got to pull out but still run. Um, that's what production car racing is yeah. and always has been. It's been one of those things where I think it's more difficult mm -hmm. especially when you're racing endurance racing in production cars because you're making something that is not built to do long periods of time at full throttle at full tilt around yeah. very aggressive racetracks like Bathurst and everything along those lines um, you're yeah you're making a car do something it was definitely not designed to do and the development in that and the way that we run those cars and make them reliable to run the races that we run, like the six hours of Bathurst mm -hmm. or some of the four-hour races and two-hour races and 300-kilometre races that we do. Um, I've always found that Australian production cars has been that kind of 
for me anyway, um, this, it's, there's more excitement development and we're also very constrained rule-wise. So there's not a lot that we can actually modify. Where brakes are free, um, but to a diameter. Mm-hmm. Um, suspension's free, you can run whatever suspension you want in it. Um, engine's locked, ECU's free. Um, you can change the ECU out, but the engine is sealed, the gearbox is sealed. The differential, you could put an LSD in it, but you can't change ratios or anything like that. Um, generally, you're stuck to a wheel size. Like, there's so many constraints, and I find the joys and the real kind of specialty... This is on Australian production. Australian production cars, and yep. just production cars in general, yep. even the old V8 supercars. Okay. Um, generally, it's, it's more fun to try and get those advantages mm. and find your performance peak inside the constraints yeah that you of course are. yeah um so yeah i did that um for five years with them and what was your role there um so i was uh, the well, third mechanic or mm-hmm. uh the bitch yeah <laughs> <laughs> washing cars cleaning cars everything along those lines um that's what was my job and i slowly learned and worked my way up and look, the guy i work for colin osborne has been in australian motorsport for 20 plus years he's won 24 hours of bathurst's back when they had 24 hours of Bathurst. He's won proper Australian touring car and um, production car championships with Celicas yeah. and Toyotas. He's done the Nürburgring 24 hours. He was also the president of CAMS, mm-hmm. or now called Motorsport Australia, mm-hmm. which is the governing body for motorsport in this country. And yeah. he did that for eight years. Wow. So the biggest thing I gained from him wasn't just the knowledge and the experience, but the network. Yeah. And Australian motorsport is who you know, not what you know. Yeah, of course. Of Every course. day of the week. Yeah. Um, and building a reputation up is very, very difficult. Yeah. I'm very lucky to have the reputation that I do now. Um, but yeah, that's a lot of hard work and a lot of time. So we worked with him five years while doing a little bit of Lotus, a um, little bit of work with some GT cars, mm-hmm. everything along those lines. Um, and then COVID hit. So everything kind of settled down. Um, and then we did, I think we did a six hour, yeah, so 2021 was the first kind of Easter 2021 was the first time we were really back into it after COVID. Yeah. Um, there was been test days and there's been little things here and there, but no one had really run the category or run a category apart from supercars properly full time um, and invested with a big event. So yeah. that was the first big event and there was certain restrictions, but 2021, Easter 2021, the restrictions were kind of lax. So we were, yes, we were all wearing masks and yes, we were all doing this stuff, but it wasn't, it was at that point where everyone was kind of out of lockdown, everything's comfortable, we're starting to get out of this mess and everything like that. Um, so yeah, that was uh, C-Class in 2021. Um, I ran with two, we ran two cars that year um, at Bathurst um, and we... Um, what were they? Uh, both Renaults. Yep. So two Renaults. Um, and we had a couple of drivers, a few gentlemen drivers, Colin Osborne was one of them. Um, What's a gentleman driver? A gentleman driver is essentially not a pro, but someone with lots of money who drives race cars. Okay. So he, you find there's some really good gentleman drivers out mm-hmm. there, like would make a lot of pros look like shit. Yeah. Um, but generally it's someone who doesn't do it professionally, doesn't do it for a living, has a separate business that they run, and this is their hobby. Okay. And that's what you'd classify as a gentleman driver, someone okay. with the money to do it, mm-hmm. and usually funds the projects, funds the race cars, build, gets someone to build them for him, and, and then, then just drives them yeah. with a pro driver or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then we had this young kid. Um, so that's why you've got two, so that if the gentleman driver is not so great, you still can play, so you can still yeah, win. Yeah, okay. exactly. And that's generally why you have two race cars, but also two drivers per okay. car. And in about the six hour, you have to. Yeah. So we're restricted in a six hour on driver time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can do a maximum of three and a half hours. Um, and you can do, in your, the minimum you can do um, is generally two and a half hours. 
Um, but so we've got to split drivers up and do driver changes and have them sit those times and everything like that. And of course, with the six out, there's also a pro and an am. So you have to have a pro driver. You can have a pro driver, but you have to have an amateur driver as well. Yeah, interesting. you can't have two pros. Okay. Um, so yeah, and we had so we had Colin running with um, young kid called Josh Haynes. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, actually the other way around. So I had Colin running with uh, Rick Bates, mm-hmm. who's a well-known name. The Bates is through rallying and everything like yep. that. Um, and then we had Josh Haynes running with um, a bloke from Bendigo called Cade. Um, and they won the C-Class Championship that year. Wow. Um, we did really, really well. We actually pushed through. Pit stops were perfect. Fueling was perfect. Cars, for the first time in many, many years, actually ran faultlessly. <laughs> that never fucking happens. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with those Renaults. Um, ran faultlessly, and it was, it was good. Um, and that was the first year where we're really kicking back into it. Um, throughout that year, um, Josh was kind of developing his career as a young kid, um, and pushing through and doing all that kind of stuff and starting in like pulsars and kind of just trying to develop his career as a racing driver so i didn't do much in 2021 Mm -hmm. um i did a little bit here and there worked for a few guys just like one-offs um going out to racetracks track dang people doing all that but my focus was probably mostly on developing the business yeah at that point in time um we just started we were six months in at that point in time and that's what took my focus yeah um and then we roll around to uh, 2022 Mm -hmm. um 2022 was a really good year for us um very very successful in what i did um so we started off the year i got a call from um josh's manager um, and essentially asking for sponsorship and everything like that. And look, one of my provisos, if we do do any sort of sponsorship or sponsor a driver, is that I have to have input or work on the car mm. because I'm not plastering my name over something I don't have input in, especially when I've got the reputation I've yeah, got. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which people are usually fine with because I'm not shit at my job. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Josh Haynes asked sponsorship. I was like, look, well, I'm working on it. And that's in the Trans Am TA2 Championship. Now, that's a completely different ball game to what I was used to never really worked on a car like that. The easiest way to explain the Trans Am cars is they're pretty much NASCARs. Yeah. So big 525 horsepower V8, four speed H pattern dog box, mm-hmm. um, big diff at the back, solid rear axle, not independent rear suspension. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're, they're like farming machinery, yeah. to be honest. Um, got to the point where you can take a gearbox out in 40 minutes. Like it's, it's really not difficult. And the gearboxes are only like this big yeah. and you can lift them in and out and everything like that. So um, that was actually the first weekend I did with them was a really rough weekend. Okay. Um, they bought a secondhand car, hadn't been a lot of development into it. Um, we broke multiple drive shafts, um, like proper tail shafts, not yeah, wow. side drive shafts, like snapped solid metal. Couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, that was on the, it was a Friday, Saturday weekend, so only a two-day weekend. Um, generally speaking, most racing you'll do Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Friday will be a practice. Um, in a lot of the categories I run, Friday's practice and qualifying. Mm-hmm. So you'll have two practice sessions and a qualifying at the end of the day. Um, two races Saturday, two races Sunday. Okay. Um, and the TA2 championship running over two days was essentially one practice, one quali race, and then the Saturday was three races. So look, he did reasonably well but every time he went out it broke um so we figured it turned out that the gearbox that was in that car and this is the first time they've properly run that car the gearbox that was in that car had broken gears off so actual teeth and when yeah. we were shifting at the right point jamming the gearbox up and snapping drive shaft wow. so okay i think i started that job uh seven o'clock 
on Friday night. Um, had the gearbox out and ready to go back in with the flywheel clutch, everything like that was all changed and ready to go. Pretty much everything from the motor back. Um, was done by about 11 that mm-hmm. night. Um, fitted everything back in first thing in the morning. Went out for the first race, um, to second race. Had to start from the back because drive shaft broke and we yep. didn't finish the first race. Yep. Um, so coming through the field, unfortunately, copped a hit. Um, spun out, um, ended up bending the entire rear differential and everything like that. Wow. Um, so by that was the yeah, second race. Um, there's only three races this weekend. Um, by the end of the yeah, end of the second race, we were in another position, back last, broken diff. So we replaced the entire rear differential, um, tire, tire solid rear axle, everything along those lines. And then he started from um, yeah last position in the third race, um, which was a night race as well. Yeah. Um, and he went from 21st to fourth. So wow. Really talented kid. Wow. Um, got to know those that car very well that yeah. weekend. Yeah. Um, and then. Um, yeah, so after all of that, of course, we're going to pull the gearboxes out and do a whole lot of refurbing to all this kind of stuff. Um, so that's how I got into the Bathurst team that we won with in 2022. Um, so I was down in Canberra one weekend and um, we his best mate, Josh's best mate, who was living with them at the time, essentially where I was working on the car, um, he was building a BMW mm-hmm. um, M2 competition mm-hmm. to attack and try and win the six hour yep. outright. Um, and generally speaking, like Steve called up Craig, Tom's dad, and Tom Sargent's now racing in the US and Porsche's really, really successful kid. Yeah. Um, but he um, yeah, called Craig and was like, I've got this bloke, he's young, but he knows BMWs very, very well. Um, and essentially what happened was I ended up um, going down to their workshop in Canberra, which is where um, Josh was. Yep. So I was down in Canberra working on the car. Half an hour drive into Canberra, um, had a look at the car and went, look, you're doing a lot of the right things, but look, have you thought about the computers? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And they're like, no. And I went, okay, <laughs> um, here's my number. Um, so Craig was helping, Craig's Tom's dad, and he was funding the project and he was working a bit on the car, so was Tommy, but the guys who were building the car was a guy called Colin Hill. Um, his son, Cameron Hill, was driving it. Um, he's a Porsche Carrera Cup champion, currently drives for Matt Stone Racing in the V8 Supercar Series. Yeah. Um, really lovely kid. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't say kid, he's 25 now. <laughs> he's younger than me, so kid. <laughs> really lovely kid. Um, and that they were building the car. Um, so Craig was funding the project, Colin was building the car, and I get back to Sydney, I think it was midday through Monday, I get a call from Colin just being like, the boys reckon I should have a chat with you about this. And I went, okay. So that's where I started. That was two months before the event was meant to start, and that was in, yeah, late, uh, yeah, late February, um, late February, early March. Um, and yeah, we started with them working on the project. Um, and that was just advice to start off with, um, everything along those lines. So like a bit of consulting. Bit of consulting, yeah. yeah. And just helping them understand how to build these cars and mm-hmm. run these cars. And I was still contract, well, not contracted, but I was already committed to working with Osborne's that year. Yeah. So with the Renaults. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so is there a conflict of interest there? No, not really. Because okay. they're not the same category. Okay. And to be perfectly honest, nowadays, technically speaking, um, like this year's six hour, I'm going to have two cars with my intellectual property, my tunes, like they're going to be running against each other. So technically you'd classify that as a conflict of interest and Mm -hmm. I'm still backing my product in both. Yeah. But because I'm an individual contractor and like their advantage is at the moment me, my tunes, the development I've done on these cars, it's kind of like, yeah, without me 
you can complain, but without me, it's going to be very hard to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's I'm in that position now where I'm valuable enough that I can work on multiple cars yeah. and not have an issue of conflict. Um, but in that case, no, there wasn't because one's a C-class Renault mm-hmm. and one's an X-class M2 competition. Yeah. So two opposite ends of the fucking spectrum. Okay. Um, so yeah, um, we ended up that situation. That's the 2022 Bathurst. Um, we ended up in a situation where the car was only done, let's say, two weeks before mm-hmm. the race event, which is never where you want to do. Yeah. Um, racing, you want testing, you want development, you want to understand the shake down, you want to shake down the car, you want to be in a position where you understand what the car's doing at like, everything. Yeah, especially before you go to Bathurst. Of course, yeah. Where the walls are close, yeah. it's very fast, yeah. it's, that track is hard on gear. Mm. It's really, really hard on cars. The loads that they go through, the temperatures that they reach coming up the hill, like, and just the general, and like the six hour is a unique event because it's like we have generally every year we get 62 cars yeah and 62 cars on that track is busy yeah um at the best of times and they're all different classes so you've got everything from bmw m2s in x class all the way down to the suzuki swifts and toyota echoes they run in e and d yeah so you've got really fast cars that'll do 300 down the straight Mm. and then little suzuki swifts which will top out at 170 and navigating that yeah. with a car that's relatively unknown is never something you really want to do. Is that all in the same race? Well, all in the same race. Okay. So it's a multi-class event. Yeah. Um, so like I said, you're racing around while the Suzukis are there. So we generally, if you're an X-class car, you're generally lapping or catching the back mm. of the field by lap three or four. Yeah. Okay. You're already at the back of the field and then you've got to navigate traffic, yeah. which adds an entire new realm yeah. to, to driving racing, yeah. and strategy and everything that we do, safety cars, all of that kind of stuff. So um, we were in that position. It ended up going up to a guy called Berwick Linton. Mm-hmm. Um, they helped them get the technology and stuff done. At that point in time, I didn't necessarily have the experience and the access to people that I do now mm-hmm. um, to be able to decode those cars and make that work. So it wasn't something I could do, but I could help with the tune and I could advise them and do all that kind of stuff. So it got fixed. They made it run. It ended up going to Queensland Raceway for a first shakedown. And apart mm-hmm. from running out of fuel, car ran well. Yeah. Everything ran faultlessly. Um, next week, it was there the Thursday. Um, they brought down Eastern Creek. That's the one I was there with them. Yep. Um, we worked on a bit of suspension. Um, I worked on the tune, getting the tune comfortable to drive, making sure the drivers were used to it and mm-hmm. understand how to drive these cars and making sure the computers all work properly. Um, and that was my job that second test day. And then they went to Bathurst and I went to Bathurst. Wow. Um, the weekend for the Renaults didn't go as planned. Okay. Um, we went through three engines. Wow. Yeah, not the finest moment no. for the Renaults um, and there's a whole story behind that that we don't need to discuss um, but because it's contentious on both sides about who was at fault yeah. and that's always going to be the case uh, so Sorry, we, uh, I we just fixed the car yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just fixed the car don't that was not my issue on this one um, we don't so, have to get into that yeah. no we don't, don't have to get into that but yeah we went through three engines it just wasn't happening and the car the BMW was showing pace mm. like it was quick yeah and surprisingly quick um i've had the pleasure of the last two years the bmws i've worked on no one's really paid attention to Mm -hmm. they haven't been big names they haven't been like v8 supercar drivers or anything special um they've just been like the low team that either hasn't finished Mm -hmm. or the one that no one really takes seriously um which i like yeah because no one really watches us and then when we're fast it's almost too late for the other teams to make the changes they need to make 
to keep up with us. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely an advantage in mm, that. Like flying course. under the radar when yeah. it comes to motorsport, flying little, under uh, the radar is... Little Trojan horse Oh, yeah, strategy. it is very much... <laughs> adva- it's a very good advantage to have. Yeah. Um, so they, it was going all right. So I had a chat to Colin at that time and just went, look, you've got two cars. Neither of them are running. One's going to run, but it's not going to run well. Mm-hmm. And you don't need me. Because he had a team of a lot of people. It's like, you don't need me. Like, I don't need to be here. Can you allow me to go and work for the BMW guys? And he let me go. And wow. that's the respect that I have yeah. for Colin. Yeah. Also, the fact that I'd given him, at that point, six years of free work. Yeah, and yeah of his, course. His thing was always about developing young mechanics, young drivers, and everything along those lines. So I was like, that was me taking the leap out from under mm. him and going to do something else. And yeah. Well, at some point, you have to, you have to take it upon yourself to, to do you. Yeah, absolutely. And we can't, unfortunately, never... It was one of those things where it's an uncomfortable conversation to have. It's yeah. like, because you've given me my start in racing. Of course, yeah, yeah. And leaving halfway through a weekend is never something you really want to be doing because... And the rest of the team was a bit pissed off. Mm. But they understand. They understood after the race why I did it. Yeah. Um, but that's also not the point. Yeah. It's, I'd given my heart and soul to that team for six mm. years. And I was mid-race weekend going to work for someone else. But from my business's perspective... We're working on BMWs. We're yeah. developing BMWs. You're not working on Renaults. No. Yeah. So that was the marketable thing from my business and the fact that we were showing enough pace to have a shot at winning this. Um, and so essentially I went over them halfway through Saturday just before quali. Um, started just looking over the car, checking a few things, just advisory role essentially. Um, but also doing some brake changes and checking clamps and making sure everything was running properly and built properly and everything along, along, mm-hmm. along those lines. Um, so yeah, and then qualifying comes around. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Sargent's in the car. So Tom Sargent was 20 at the time. Yep. Um, he just won the Australian Formula Ford Championship. Um, but he was essentially... My, uh, no, my seat's sinking there. <laughs> <laughs> um, essentially, he was like, no one was really checking him out. Like, yeah. he had a few, uh, like, because he won the Australian Formula 4 Championship, he got a test in a Penske V8 supercar, um, the Dick Johnson Racing V8 supercar. Like, he was known, but not really well known. Yeah. And Cameron Hill, the other driver, was in a position where he was a Porsche Carrera Cup winner. People kind of knew where he, he was, but we had V8 supercar drivers driving. So you can understand who takes the limelight. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Probably shouldn't, considering the last two years and what we've done without V8 supercar drivers. But look, they do take the limelight, unfortunately, and that's yeah. the way it is. Um, so yeah, Tommy's driving it. He's a relative nobody. He was classified as an AM. Mm-hmm. Never will be again. Yeah. And as soon as that race finished, it was no longer an AM. Yeah. We definitely were very lucky on Tommy being considered yeah. an AM wow. driver um, because he was a bro. And he was hadn't started yet, but he was... Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's Carrera Cup cars or yeah. three-year-old Carrera Cup cars that yeah. he was racing that year. So, he would have been... a pro, And he was in the pro category for that, mm. but that season hadn't started yet. Okay. Um, so, it was just on the cusp. Um, but, yeah, Tommy went out and qualified it and put it on pole. Wow. By a reasonable margin. Yeah. Too. Like, kid was really, really quick. Yeah. And it shocked everybody. Um, unfortunately, after that happened... Um, of course, there's a media circus mm-hmm. and interviews and everything like that. So the car sat for 45 minutes while the sun was going down. Okay. Um, when we went to scrutineering after that, um, car was too low. And it was... Ah, uh, okay. Um, and we've got 100... Like, like, actually, funnily enough, like the coppers, 100 millimetres is the lowest you can have with the wheel. The wheel, yeah. We're exactly the same. Yeah. Apart from the exhaust, the exhaust doesn't count. Yeah. But every part on the car has to be 100 millimetres off the ground. Mm. We were three to four 
mil too low on the fins on the back of the diff. So the cooling fins on the bottom of the diff. Massive. In those, yeah, they're massive, <laughs> but like that much. Yeah. It's like a puffteenth. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like the wheel went under and it's not like it jammed up, like it grabbed. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I can't get it through. And I'm like, oh, come on, bruv. <laughs> so we did everything. We spent half an hour like pushing it under the boot to try and lift the yeah. rear up yeah. and redoing tire pressures, readjusting. But unfortunately, we just didn't make the cut. So we ended up having to, unfortunately, that pole position got taken away from us and mm -hmm. we ended up having to start from 63rd on the grid. Wow. So dead wow. last. Yes. <laughs> Jeez. Not our finest moment, no. but look, it is what it is. Yeah. It happened. Um, I can smile about it now because the end result was good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, like it's just one of those things and everyone was devastated. Mm. Like, of course, as you would be. The hours leading up to the, the Tommy, Colin, Cam, all of them had done in the workshop to get that car ready. They were pulling massive hours, like mm. working so hard just to get that car done in time for the race. And to have that taken away, it kind of was a bit of kick in the guts for all, all of us. Um, but look, we ended up, Cam actually made a great speech, um, a fantastic speech. One of those like um, Braveheart kind of yeah. motivating, <laughs> um, get you all in the right. He's like, look, we last, but look, we've still got a shot at doing this, boys. Like, come on, we can yeah. do this, everything like that. And it was actually fantastic. It was mm. one of those moments that like in all sports, like that motivating, like fun yeah, moment course. for everyone. And it's one of those like picturesque kind you of things the, that you, you see the, in movies. Yeah, you need the coach to, to bring the team together and yeah. To, to yeah, everything like that. get you to the front of the line. Um, so look, it was it was really good. And we just like, we went into the... So we went into that race mm -hmm. and um, yeah, Tommy started um, 40 minutes in. We've been, I think we're uh, uh, 40 minutes in, we were 20th. Mm -hmm. So <coughs> overtook 40 cars. Yeah, wow. That being said, a lot of them were lower class cars like Swifts and Subarus and mm -hmm. a whole lot of other things, mm -hmm. but still overtaking 40 yeah. cars on a track like that's no mean feat. No, of course. Um, by an hour and a half in, we were top 10. Wow. And then throughout the rest of the race, we slowly just kind of gradually crept up, crept up, crept up, crept up. The pit stops went off without a hitch. Every safety car we came in, everything worked. The team worked. The pit stops worked. Everyone was kind of in mesh. Mm -hmm. We were all, yeah, like two hours in, we're all sitting here. Actually, we could fucking do this. Yeah, like, yeah. We've got good car pace. We've got the ability. We've got the drivers. The car, if it lasts, which it should do, it's a mm. brand fucking new car. Mm. Well, I, I imagine it would feel as if you know, such a fuck up at the beginning, you know, no one's fault, but such a, such a shit sort of, after everything that's gone into it, just, you know, the last thing that needed to happen, happened, oh, yeah. and just something that really shouldn't have happened, happened. Yeah. Ev maybe everyone in the back of their mind was just like, you know what, we have no option but to just band together. Yeah. And everything needs to be absolutely flawless because every millisecond counts here. Absolutely. Um, and it just, it worked. Everything worked. And we just, yeah, potted through, Hour three rolls past, hour four rolls past, we're climbing, climbing, hour five comes through. Um, we ended that just before the last hour. Um, there was a safety car, mm -hmm. and there wasn't like an argument about it, but there was a heated discussion about whether we take tyres or not. Because, look, we have to run in the six hour on um, an MRF tyre, okay. which is an Indian, it's like Mahindra running, I actually don't know, or mm -hmm. Manor tyres. Like, it's an Indian tyre, they sponsor the event, mm -hmm. so we have to purchase tyres through them. They're ridiculously expensive. You have to run them at pressures you've never run them before. They have fuck all grip. They are a shit tyre. Why? So, honestly, I've never heard of the brand. What's the brand? Uh, Manor tyres. Or, it's, yeah, it's an Indian company. Never heard of them before? Well, no, because they're not commercially available in the country. 
country. Yeah, been doing this which, for a decade, never heard of which before. Which is also why we sit there and go, why are they sponsoring this event? Yeah. Like, it's not going to build their brand. No, not at all. They're, they're, look, they have their uses, but... So generally speaking, like we run on a hand cooker or a standard semi-slick that we've been running on for years. Yeah. We do three or four tyre changes. The Renaults didn't have to do a tyre change for six hours. Wow. Like, as a race tyre, yeah. that's not on. No, like, of course. It's way too hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it's funny because you have to, we have to adapt the tunes. Like, so, for example, the one I ran this year, uh, yeah, this year, 2023, and the back end of last year is the M4. Like, mm-hmm. we run in the Australian Production Touring Championship, which is essentially the state version of the Australian Production Cars okay. um, in New South Wales. And we run a Yokohama um, mm-hmm. tyre on that. And that's fantastic. Like, I can dial up the power, everything like that. The MRF, I've got to take a significant amount of throttle response out. I've got to take boost by gear, like third gear, I've got to take 20% of the torque out just to make the car drivable on an mm. MRF tyre. Mm. They are slippery as shit. Wow. And not what I would even close to like, even some of like RE003 road tyres mm-hmm. or the like the um, Yoko 107 road tyres have more grip than this. Yeah, it's essentially course. a semi-slick race tyre. That's, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, so that the crap. No yeah. one likes them. We've got to run them again this year. But I can't really complain because our advantage is being adapting our car and our tune to, yeah, of to work with those tyres. Yeah. Um, and it's very fast. Well, not very fast, but faster than most on yeah. those tyres yeah. because we make the car comfortable to drive. Um, so, yeah, we, we decided to take an extra set of tyres. But everyone would think, yeah, you could do the fronts or the rears. We did right-hand side. Um, and the reason for that is Bathurst is an mm. anti-clockwise track. So most of your turns are left-hand turns, which yeah. means the right side's what's loaded yeah. up the most. Yeah. So the most grip, the most load, the most force going through those tyres is going to be on the right-hand side of the car. So we took a set of right-hand side tyres. Um, I think we were, at that point, I think we were running second, second behind Tim Slade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just fucking worked because we came out of the pits and then... Safe. We were 50 seconds behind. Okay. So a lot of ground to make up. Yeah. Probably would have done it, mm-hmm. but perfect timing. Commodore, uh, old VX Commodore, breaks down, pulls to the side, safety guard. Yeah, wow. Brought us within 10. So, and look, it was something we all just sat there and went, oh shit, like we can, we can do this. We we've can got do it. 40 minutes left. Yeah. We're 10 seconds back, but we've got new tyres and the car had been fast all weekend. Yeah. So through the next 20 minutes... Cam sides through the traffic and gets up to the back of him. We were making, like, we were two, two seconds a lap faster. Mm. Like, we were so much quicker. Cam was driving the wheels off the car. The car was working. Everything was comfortable. Everything was happy. Um, and then, yeah, so he's sat behind him for two or three laps, just trying to get past, not really working. Can't really find a gap. And, look, no one expected him to do it where he did it. But um, if, for your listeners, if they know Bathurst, Brock Skyline, mm-hmm. um, coming over the top of the hill... He late breaks, tips it in down Skyline. Slady goes out, and we ended up overtaking him in the worst or the place no one overtakes. Yeah. Like, you should not pass there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, that was the lead. Wow. And, then and sorry, how long's left of the race at this 20 point? 20 minutes. Yep. So we still had to maintain it. Yeah, but of course. To be blunt, we fucked off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, we, we, we pulled probably about a 10-second gap in five, six laps yeah. um, in 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. And by the end of it, we kind of just backed off. We finished the finished the race with seven seconds lead on them. Wow. So, and that was the wow. win. That was the first, that was my first outright Bathurst win. Yeah. And look, it's, it's one of those things like winning any race is awesome. Of course. 
winning one of the biggest three endurance races in this country mm. that's special yeah very. And let alone to do it multiple times yeah um so that was the c-class win the year before we went from strength to strength um the bathurst win and then that was one of my busiest weekends ever because mm. um my dad was away so i had to run a front desk in my workshop mm-hmm. um he was actually following my racing yeah dickhead <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so i was next week Next, the next weekend, I was down at the Ben Motorsport Park in South Australia mm-hmm. running Josh's TA2. Um, and then that weekend, we went out with the Trans Am. Um, we got three seconds in the first place to win the round out there. So, like, I was dead. Yeah. Like, after that weekend, even when we won, I was just, like, sat down in the back of the truck and just went, oh, I want to celebrate, but I'm I so yeah. tired. <laughs> um, been working so fucking hard. But, yeah, it was fantastic. And, look, Josh did reasonably well the rest of the season, mm-hmm. which was really, really nice for him. Um, and we think we finished fifth or something like that, but we had a lot of car failures. Mm. Um, not so much maintenance-wise, just an old car. Yeah. Um, pushing hard, trying to get the most out of that car on a car that's built in twenty a race car that's built in twenty sixteen, and yeah. you're running it in twenty twenty two. It's eight years old. It's been through the ringer already. It's not gonna like no. shit, shit doesn't last. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, and maintenance needed to be kept up to it. And look, it's. TA2 turns out to be, it's meant to be a budget Mm -hmm. entry thing. It turns out to be fucking expensive. Yeah, of course. Like the cars end up being about 180 grand. Yeah. Um, And then your front bars are six grand each. Like not to mention your stubble axles, gearboxes are five and a half, engines 50. Like it all adds up. Of course. Um, We should do another episode. We should get into like the back end of, of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. I reckon we can understand the... I can teach you probably a fair <laughs> bit about the financing of <laughs> yeah, like the way race cars do. Racing is a business. Yeah. Right, and we'll actually, the commercially, it's a different world. Yeah. And it's losing money more than anything else. But oh, yeah, we can do another episode and yeah, talk yeah, about definitely. that then. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've got that. And that was a good year for us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, halfway through that year, so June, July, I get contacted by a guy called Aaron Gretsch. Mm-hmm. Um, I think actually, not even contacted, I think he was putting up on Facebook... Anyone with experience to help run this car, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I won the last six hour in a BMW. I run a BMW shop. Do you want my help? What do you need? Yeah. yeah. And he goes, oh, look, I've already found someone. Um, and then a day and a half later, turned around and went, oh, actually, yeah, <laughs> come down and help. And that's when I just started developing the um, uh, M4 for this year's six hour. Mm-hmm. Truck. Yeah, that truck is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna hear that. It, it's funny doing the podcast in uh, a functioning workshop. Yeah. And I'm not sure if they can see, but you know the pipes that run along the roof and that we constantly hear when everyone's going to the toilet. Yeah, yeah, that and <laughs> this. Oh, he's reversing now. Oh, that's oh, good. That's gonna be there for a while. All right, that's it, all right. it is what it well, is. It is what it is. We'll make yeah. do. Um, so yeah, look, that year was good, and then I started working with Aaron, and that was eight months before the six hour this yeah. year. And we were constantly developing that car. Like, all the stuff that I'd learned with the tuning and stuff that I'd done on road cars. And because we're so restricted in Australian production cars, like, a lot of the road cars I built are actually quicker. Mm. A lot quicker than the race cars that yeah. we built. Yeah. Like, and they're not restricted. We can run decent semi slip tyres. I can run big boost. I can run different charge pipes, different turbos. Like, there's so much more capability in these road cars. Um, like this as a road car is faster, much faster than any of the production based versions, production car based yeah, versions wow. of these. Wow. So like we're limited, I'm running 17.4 pound in this a boost. We're limited to 13 mm-hmm. um, in the APC mm-hmm. series. So these, this car and with the gearbox, the tires, brakes, everything that I've done to this, it's quicker. Yeah. Um, heavier, but quicker. Yeah. It's because it's got four seats, radios and everything yeah, like yeah, that. Course, but yeah, if yeah, I was yeah. to strip it out and run this car, it'd be much faster. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, we just, all the road car stuff that we were doing was working with developing that car and we were just slightly getting better and better. And that car hadn't finished a six hour in four years. Something had broken, wow. a pipe had come off charge pipes or, or something. So what, what car was it? A BMW M4. Okay. Um, and Standard M4? Uh, no, look, it had a different tune in it, not okay. one of mine. It had but a not, not a competition or a CS or anything? Uh, it's by that point, like, it makes no difference. Okay. So, like, the motor we put in it mm-hmm. was from a GTS, a wreck okay. GTS. Okay, yeah. But the bare bones of it, the, the difference on those kind of, the CSs and the GTSs, apart from a couple of carbon panels, mm-hmm. and if you buy the DTM M4 yep. carbon ceramic brakes and stuff like that, they're the same car. Okay. They're just different states of tune. Um, so we tune past the GTSs and CSs and everything like that normally anyway. Yeah. So look, it's the, the the stuff that we use in the race car is generally like all the same. So the GTSs, the CSs, they all have the same running gear, they have the same gearbox, same diffs, everything like that in them. So it's all the same. Um, but yeah, it's just a, it's a, technically it started life as a standard M4, but it's yeah. got V8 supercar brakes on it, three-way adjustable MCA gold shock absorbers, different sway bars in it, different springs. Like you upgrade well past that. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, we just uh, developed it. We put different tune in it, um, which made a big difference. Mm. Um, like not that custom like your listeners may understand like power curves or everything like that, but the torque curve on the tune that they had would come up and then drop straight off. So it was spiky and unpredictable and really, really hard to drive. Um, the tune that we put in it um, comes up, stays static, and then drops off towards the end. So it just made it much more, it's more torque, mm. but much more predictable to drive. Yeah. And le- unless you're running down the main straight at Con- uh, um, Conrad Strait at Bathurst, power doesn't really mean shit. You yeah. want torque and drive out of corners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the best thing in a race car. So we developed that over eight months, worked with them pretty consistently in the production car, the production touring car championship, um, just constantly developing the car and the driver. Mm. So we had uh, our pro driver for 2023 was a guy called Jade Nojada. Yep. Um, he's now doing really, really well. Yep. Uh, really, really well. He's done a Bathurst 1000 start now, his second one. Yep. Um, he's doing, he's currently over in, I think, Asia. Um, he's been asked to run a GT car. Wow. He runs a GT car here. Wow. Um, and yeah, he wasn't really doing much apart from a bit of driver training with driving solutions and a few little things here and there. He, that's what he was doing before the six hour. Um, so it wasn't really big fish at that point. Um, so we got to, yeah, we had a pro driver and then our other driver, Simon, um, Simon Hodges. Look, he's not what you'd see as a racing driver yeah he's a gentleman driver but mm-hmm. he's definitely not he is skinny pasty kind of rang up and uh, runs a company called secure wealth advisors okay so he's a finance bloke and that's what he does um but this is what he does for fun mm. and the difference over those eight months that simon made just having a car that's more comfortable to drive that's yeah. predictable to him that could be adapted to the way he drives like he is like you'd never expect someone like that to win a Bathurst. Yeah. Like, and he just did so well. Like, the changes he made, the development he made was amazing. Mm. Um, so as we were developing the car, we were also developing the driver. Yeah. And developing the car, we're doing like suspension changes, changing springs, stiffer sway bars, seeing what really worked with the tyres that we had and the car that we had. Um, another, I'd say, not the most exciting weekend um, for us, like a lot of work and yeah. a lot of problems. Yeah, so of course. We did... This, the 2023 Bathurst six hour was good, but also stressful as shit. So we'd already developed this car. We had to put, I put an engine in it probably only two months before. Mm-hmm. And then we went out for a test day, let's say a, a week before the event mm-hmm. and gearbox didn't feel right. Yeah. So we whacked the gearbox in it straight away. 
got it coded, everything like that, went out to test and just did a couple of test day uh, t- test sessions the day before, like the we- Tuesday or the Wednesday before we meant to go down to Bathurst, which again, not a position Lakes. any of us yeah, would have been in. Yeah, no, not at all. Not um, at all. So we were, I was spending a lot of late hours, as was Aaron, um, just trying to get this job done, get the car running. So we get it down to Bathurst. Look, it's kind of better conditions, like not as hot, nice and cool. We got rain the first day, top practice session one. We're like, fuck yes, mm. car's quick, sweet, just running reliably. And then throughout the other three practice sessions and qualifying, we're just chasing an issue. Yeah. So all weekend we just had... Like, it just kept jumping into limp mode. We couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, changing tunes. We're adjusting this. We're trying to replace this. We're, like, hunting for this problem that we couldn't find. Um, and it gets to Saturday night, race is Sunday. We qualified on a stock tune, but we still qualified fifth mm. on a stock tune, yeah. which is running on a lot less power. Yeah, of course. Like, almost 100 less horsepower. And it wasn't going to limp mode on a stock tune? No, it wasn't. Okay. So, when we were running more boost, mm-hmm. it was... So, look, we thought tune, but it was like, look, I've run this tune all last year. I've run this tune in about 20 road cars, like never had this issue before. Yeah. So it was like, everyone's like, it's the tune. I was like, it's probably not the yeah. tune. <laughs> Let's be honest, it's something else, but it's probably not the tune. The tune's just exacerbating the issue. Mm. Um, so we actually ended up, because you can't really test uh, and find an issue just openly on a racetrack. Yeah. So we actually ended up talking to someone who had a truck yard with a 400 metre driveway. Yeah. Um, and that was enough for us to get a decent speed up and try and figure out what was going on. Um, so we get out to this truck yard and it was seven, eight o'clock at night, back into Bathurst somewhere, um, run on this driveway, the private driveway, and we get up speed and it, like it just starts to run rough. Bring it back and we go, hang on a second, I know what that is. I was like, sounds like a misfire. Do the old school trick of pulling each coil mm-hmm. out, misfire cylinder five. It turns out that every time the drivers had come in, hit the isolator switch, clear all the codes and reset the car. Wow. So what a absolute nightmare. <laughs> Just for Far a fucking out. dead coil yeah, pack. Yeah. <laughs> Two wow. days of pain, suffering, and late nights. Fuck, we were happy when we found it. Oh, but I bet, I bet. I was like, oh, I can't be. So we did first thing in the morning, we did plugs and coils um, and changed the plastic charge pipes because they normally break. Yeah. Um, start at fifth. And then, yeah, the rest is kind of history by lap two. We'd overtaken everyone, including two V8 supercar drivers. And then we kind of just fucked off. Um, stayed, managed the gap at about 10, 15 seconds ahead mm-hmm. of them until the first pit stop and Jaden had to come in. Simon, throughout the centre of the race, did his two and a half hours dead on. Yep. Um, and I think he did a fantastic job. Mm. He kept us in the running, he kept us in 10th. It's not the fastest driver, but he was consistent, didn't hit any walls, didn't crash a car, didn't run into anyone, did what he needed to do. He spent two and a half hours in the car, which is a long fucking time yeah, very. to be spending in a car at Bathurst. He did yeah. an immense job. Mm. Absolutely amazing. We are so fucking proud of what he did. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so Simon comes in, Jaden gets back in, we're 10th. And then through the next, and that was two, two and a bit hours before the end. Yeah. Through the next, let's say, hour, just climbs, 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 climbs. Did an amazing pass down Conrod straight on the grass. Four or five cars kind of bunched together with traffic. So someone we were trying to overtake, um, actually a V8 supercar driver, Tom Randall, in an M2, which mm-hmm. should have been quicker than us. Yeah. Um, there was a Suzuki, there was a BMW. Like you couldn't get past. So Jaden goes two wheels on the grass around the outside at 210k yeah. an hour <laughs> on the grass, just kind of like, yeah, this is all right. Pulls it back in and takes off. Um, and then yeah, we had a red flag, which kind of helped us. We allowed allowed us to do some more tires. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, from the rest of it, we kind of just cruised home. Managed the gap where there was a little bit of a gearbox issue and then we had a fuel warning. So that was calculated, not the actual in-tank sensor. 
because um, we pulled it out after the race and we had like 20 litres left. Yeah. But out of drama, <laughs> the commentators loved it. Yeah. Are they out of fuel? <laughs> Turns out, no, no, but there was a warning on the dash. Yeah. So we fucking panicked. Yeah, <laughs> we were like, how the fuck did we fuck this up? Um, but yeah, no, we pretty much managed the gap, um, put it into com- essentially economy, economy mode, um, pulled the shifts down a bit, the gap between shifts, so there's a little selector for how quick the mm-hmm, shifts are, mm-hmm. which ups the pressure, so we knocked that down, so we were running pretty like lax, yeah. just trying to protect the car and run it to the end, and yeah, we came through and won it second year in a row, wow. which is third year for me, if you count C-class, and yeah. I don't know, it just it's, it's weird yeah. when you do it, do it twice in a row, and yeah. the only other person that's really done that um, is... Berwick Linton, but that's the same team, same car, same drivers. I've done it each of the three years. Different team, different drivers, different cars. Wow. Wow. So the, the only obvious... Uh, <laughs> common denominator <laughs> is has been me. And like I said earlier in the podcast, like I've had the opportunity to work with some truly brilliant people. Yeah. And it's definitely not all me. Mm. Definitely not all mm. me. But my understanding and the teams that I've worked with, it's kind of just all gelled and worked together yeah. to create... And luck. Yeah, Mate, of course. Bathurst is luck. Yeah, yeah. A lot of it's luck. Yeah, like, yeah. safety cars have to fall your way, crashes have to fall your it's way, weather, pit stops, yeah, weather, it's yeah. everything has to work. Um, and, look, it's interesting because, like, the first year in 2022, it was a relatively professional team. Yeah. So, it was guys who were running Formula Fords and Porsches, trained at fuel. We had... Um, uh, Cam was running Super 2, level under V8 supercars at the time for Triple Eight Race Engineering, yep. which is Red Bull Racing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had his number one mechanic, which was fucking awesome to learn yeah. from that guy. Um, Zach, lovely guy, genuinely lovely guy, but you can see why Triple Eight are the professionals. Mm. Um, so we had a relatively pro team. Simons and the secure off on the other hand, we had me, Costas, which is, um, he runs his own, like, um, he don't, he's been in motorsport for a while, yeah. but he runs his own, like, mobile mechanic okay. in Sydney. Um, Aaron, who's Aaron Gretsch Motorsports, so he does a bit of TCR, a bit of this, a bit of that. Um, and then some apprentices, so an apprentice engineer, um, Brock, and an apprentice, en- and apprentice mechanic, Tim. Yep. And then the fuel guys that we had were all Simon's brother and his friends. Well, wow. So, okay. look, they'd done it the year before, yeah. but then by no means professional. Yeah. This is the only event they do a year. Mm. And I think that was the special thing for all of us because there are some big pro teams that yeah. we come up against with, like I said, multiple V8 supercar drivers, professionals that do this all the time, like absolute pros, and our little rabble of <laughs> amateurs <laughs> all just kind of bumbling around. Like, yeah. we were, I was retraining the guys doing fuel um, the night before and being like, no, you need to hold it like, is that comfortable? And he goes, oh, I'm not sure. I was like, tuck the fuel hose over, hold like that, use your body. Like yeah. teaching them how to actually yeah, get course. the fuel rig working properly yeah. and doing the pit stops and everything like that, retraining them essentially. So that it's that's 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 what I find excellent mm. because it's you don't and this is why I also love production car racing. Don't have to be the best in the world. To yeah. Win. Yeah. You don't. You can be just average Joe's off the street yeah. and still come out and win one of the biggest three enduros in the country. That's an incredible story. That is <laughs> that is wild. And how does have you seen a direct correlation between that and then affecting your business? Yeah, absolutely. In, in what way? Um, the way we market it, um, the websites, the website, it's all on the website, um, the stories that we post in the Drivers Club magazines and everything like that, um, and just generally having three-time Bath a six-hour winner in with three cups plastered at the front door and on yeah. the website. Um, yeah. People generally trust someone that can win a motor race and win yeah, a motor yeah, race Yeah, for sure, yeah. Because they look at it perspective-wise, they look at it and they go... Well, if he can build a race car and run a race car that wins, our road cars, nothing. Yeah, exactly. That's easy. And it provides them with confidence. Um, does sell tuning work, very much so. 
um, a lot of the tuning work that we do um, recently has come in because they're like, oh, you've won Bathurst. Yeah. My mate said you've won Bathurst and you tuned his car and it was awesome and everything along those lines. And look, we our philosophy is we want to make something reliable. Mm. I don't build cars to fail. Yeah. I build cars to do 50,000 Ks without issues. Yeah. And like with the six-hour cars, we're building cars to run six-hour, full weekend, full tilt without breaking down, right? Something it is definitely not designed to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we have had yeah definitely an uptick in business and it has helped with the marketing strategy of the business and the way that we've marketed ourselves absolutely as high performance specialists. Mm. And it fits directly into that. Yeah. Um, and then it also gets me work. So I've got a client this year when I'm running a Mustang. Yep. Not really my wheelhouse, mm-hmm. but um, look, we've done really, really well with that Mustang this year. Um, we've got, um, we're currently building him uh, half a million dollars worth of race car, yep. which is going to be a purpose-built, ground-up, 800 horsepower, far, one of the fastest race cars in the country. That We're looking forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, of course. Um, it's in sports sedans, which mm-hmm. is the only real unrestricted category where you can do whatever the hell you want yeah. and make some fucking crazy cars. Mm. Um, and then I'm having conversation with someone at the moment because we're building another M2 um, with the people I won with in uh, 2022, mm-hmm. um, Colin Hill Race Engineering and everything like that. And we're in discussions at the moment to run that and run that for the next year as well. So wow. we've got a few things coming up. It's going to be a very busy year next yeah. year. Um, so I've got to get the business sorted now <laughs> so that I can spend some time away. But look, yeah, it's, it's definitely helped. And look, it's not pay-wise. I can earn more money in the workshop. Yeah. Every day of the week. Mm. Like racing is fun. But unless you're working full-time, and even when you are working full-time, like V8 supercar mechanics and everything like that, they don't get paid very well. Mm. It's a situation what where do you're they get working. Paid? Um, generally, they're on sixty to seventy grand a year. Okay. Um, and a mechanic like that that can work on those cars can earn one hundred and twenty in a workshop like this. Yeah. One hundred percent. The money is not there. It's, the Vair supercars I've never worked in, but I have a lot of friends that have worked in it, and yep. it's very much it's a privilege to work for them. Mm. It's not the other way around. Yeah. So it's one of those things, and they have this kind of arrogance about them. Yeah. Um, that comes from management and everything along those lines that it's that that's the privilege but yeah. to be perfectly honest i find gts and um, what we do is a lot more complicated and a lot harder um which i was thought was funny about the 1000 like the one the bathurst 1000 this year where they were breaking gear shifters and everything yeah. like that that's like these cars are purpose-built to do this yeah of course if i can make a road car bmw do six hours at bathurst you should be able to make your million dollar purpose-built race car yeah, not break at yeah. bathurst like 100 come on guys yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, should wow. be better at this. That's so interesting. And so, did you make good money doing this? No. Okay. No. Um, I I can earn three times as much in the workshop. Workshop. Okay. Um, I'm not going to talk about my pricing yeah, yeah, no, mainly because uh, that's my market value. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, we're 175 dollars an hour in the workshop. Yeah. And I cannot even close to charge mm. for the amount of hours we put in. So racing isn't like a nine to five. It's not eight yeah. hours. No. You are there, Until and if something done. goes wrong you're there till uh, the amount of nights mm. I have done and proper late nights like till one in the morning yeah. preparing a car and then you're up at six at the racetrack to run that car like hard weekends mm. um, you don't earn the money you should be earning for that it's just not where it is but for someone who does it and it's their sole thing it's a struggle mm. but for me I can write it off with the fact that my business runs while I'm away yeah. um, so I'm still earning money I've still got a wage that I'm getting paid mm. um, and for the and marketing value. business. Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. marketing value. Yeah. So I can write off and do this kind of stuff as the fun stuff mm-hmm. um, because I do have a lot of ability to make it work for yeah. me. Yeah. 
um, whereas your average mechanic won't. Yeah. And that's where it's hard. Will you do? Do you see a time where you would put a manager into your shop and do this? Um, not not necessarily full time, but you know, semi full time. Um, look, I think that's definitely somewhere. I was thinking of doing probably about a year ago, mm-hmm. but look, I want to have a second shop. I want to run the business differently. Mm. Like racing, unfortunately does have a shelf life and look, I can always advise on one or two clients a year mm-hmm. um, or work with one or two clients a year, but doing it full time, like when my business is at a point where I could do that, yeah. I also want to have the life balance. Like yeah, I'm at a point course. now where I'm single. Yeah. I don't really have anyone accountable to me mm-hmm. or to be accountable to. Mm-hmm. I can do my own thing. If I get a call from a client that says, I need you in South Australia tomorrow, I can go, yep, no worries, I'll be cool. Yeah. Um, and I have that ability to work with these clients now. Um, when we get to the point where the business is running itself and I could be doing this more full time is when I'll start probably looking at having a bit more of a life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually starting to have a bit better of a work-life balance. Yeah. Like, I'm young enough and in a position now where until the business is kind of running itself mm. I've got the time and the ability to be able to do that yeah but, but the time is, it's it's you know when you're young that's when you build your foundation that's when yeah. you go hard that's the sleepless nights that's yep. the stress and then you build that foundation and then in your you know for most people in their 40s and 50s they can take a step back yeah. but you know building this in your in your early early to mid 20s you know, it allows you to sort of really build that, do the fun shit on the side. And then, you know, in your early 30s, now you've got a manager, now you can take a step back, yeah. now you can travel, now you can relax. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's always been my philosophy. Like, I've been working since I was 12 years old. I'm yeah. a qualified butcher, I'm a qualified mechanic. Yeah. Like, I've never, I've always earned my own money mm. since a young age. And I've been trying to build up my empire. Yeah. <laughs> Which is one shop at the moment, but my little empire since I was a kid. Yeah. And it's always kind of been the thing of, I got the energy, I've got the ability, I've got no commitments. Like, I can do it now mm. without much negative downside to it. But if I've got a family in the future and everything like that, it's it, going to be hard. It's it's easier to build that foundation pre-family, oh, yeah. pre-responsibilities. you know responsibilities. Absolutely. Um, so, all my guests, I've found, I've been asking this one question and I think it's probably a good thing to do it as a... Uh, uh, you know, like a tradition. Yeah. Unlimited budget. Five cars. Yep. You need to have a mix of, uh, you know, you, you can't just have a bunch of unrealistic two-seaters. You've got to have some four-seaters in there. You've got to take into account that, you know, you're going to have to do grocery shopping. You're going to have yep. to maybe move shit. So you need something big as well. Uh, assuming they're all going to stay inside. There's not, you know, street parking or anything. Five cars, unlimited budget. What's your dream garage? Um... Yeah, wow. <laughs> knowing what you know as a mechanic, it's kind of very hard because like there's a lot of cars where I could either build them or I could do this or I could yeah, do that. Yeah. Um. But stock, look, stock cars, stock, stock cars, stock cars. Yeah, stock yeah. Cars. Off the shelf. You walk that in. makes it a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. Um. Look, to be perfectly honest, um, I'd have uh, the new V8 Vantage. Mm-hmm. Um, the Aston Martin with the twin turbo AMG V8. Okay. Um, one, love to look at them. Mm-hmm. Um, love the sound they make. Yeah. Um, and they're just, because they're teamed with Merck running gear mm-hmm. and like they're kind of half built by the Germans, it's not like your old Aston Martins. Look, yeah. I love the old Aston Martins. Mm. I've worked on the old Aston Martins. Yeah, it's rubbish though. They're, oh yeah. <laughs> Shit, your quality. Like everything's handmade. That's not synonymous with quality. No. Like they have this thing about it's all hand built. Yeah. And you sit here as a mechanic or someone who knows cars, you go, that's not a good thing. No. Great for selling point. But yeah. Not a good thing it in the slightest. Nice, yeah. <laughs> it sounds yeah. nice, but in practice doesn't work. So 
Look, yeah, one of those. Um, I'd probably have the road legal bowler EXRS. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the Dakar Range Rover mm. for fun track days. Yeah. Um, everything like that. Um, I'd probably have a 140. Yeah. So this butt in with a B58, mm-hmm. the slightly up motor. Have a 140 as a daily or something like that. And you could have a little bit of fun with that. Yeah, after. of course. Yeah. Um, supercar. Oh, that'd be hard. I'm not really... Uh, I'd probably go, like, if, if unlimited budget, um, the Lotus of Fire. Yeah, okay. So fully electric, 2,500 horsepower. Yeah. Um, next level mm. um, kind of supercar. Um, and then, um, look, it's not... See, this is, this is where it comes into it. Um, it's not a car that was ever built, mm. but we have built one yeah. with a client. Um, and it's the F80 M3, mm-hmm. um, but in a wagon. Oh, Beautiful. So yeah, BMW yeah. never sold one yeah. um, at all in yeah. the F80. Yeah. There's only about eight, in the, eight to 10 in the world. Mm. Most of them are in the UK. Mm-hmm. We had a client who wanted one mm-hmm. and he was trying to buy it from the UK but couldn't get it imported. Yeah. So we worked with um, a few people who like to keep themselves secret. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a few people on the electronics and the changeover, but we built him one. Wow. Um, so we took a 328 F30 yeah. um, and a wrecked M3. Yeah. And everything got transferred over. The only thing left that's 328 is the back end of the wagon and the rear seats so we can still fold them down and see. Yeah. Um, everything else is M3. So the dash, all the electronics, wow. the steering wheel, the seats, the motor, wow. the gearbox, the rear diff, the arches, we cut out of the M3 and then body molded them. Well, we got someone to do it, but body molded them into the wagon. Mm. So it is as true as true can be a factory wagon M3. And then we stage two it because yeah, because <laughs> he wanted you get more power. Yeah, so yeah, down pipes, noise, lots more power, lots more grunt. Yeah, one of those. That'd be yeah. number five, one hundred percent. Because one big wagons are cool. Yeah, especially yeah. the big German yeah, wagons yeah, and everything yeah. like those that. RS6s but are, are but that else. one that we built mm. is next level. Off and it's also the only one in the southern hemisphere. Yeah. So it's got uniqueness to it as well. Yeah, of course, of course. But still, three hundred grand worth of car. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, if welcome. people uh, want to reach out, how can they reach you? Um, my website um, and give us a ring. Cool. It's the best way to do that. What's the website? What's um, the phone number? Uh, Bromspecbmw.com. www.bromspecbmw.com. Yeah. And our phone number is 99... Oh, fuck. 9939-4980. Very good. I don't have to quote that that much. Yeah. And what are your opening hours? Um, so we're um, 7.30 to 5, Monday to Friday. Yep. Generally, I'm always there till about 6 or 7. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, our actual opening hours are 7.30 to 5, Monday to Friday. And social media? Um, yeah, we've got Facebook. Um, the Bromspec Motorworks Facebook. Cool. We, we're starting to develop more of that into the racing side of things. But unfortunately, we just haven't had the time. Yeah. It's not, we're doing well, so it's not the priority. Yeah, point. of course. 100%. Mate, thank you very much for coming no, on. Oh, very welcome. Let's do this again. Cheers, dude. Thanks.